You're listening to The Diplomats Podcast on Asian geopolitics. As always, I'm your host, Ankit Panda, back in New York City. And this is Prashant Parmesan from Washington, D.C. How are you doing today, Prashant? Good. How are you doing? Doing well. Uh, and I hope I can say that for all of our listeners, too. Um, as probably nobody's going to be surprised, we're going to spend this episode of the podcast talking about the COVID-19 breakout that has been classified as a pandemic by the World Health Organization as of this Wednesday. Uh, we did a podcast previously uh, when the disease was still known as the novel coronavirus disease uh, early on, uh, when it was primarily a phenomenon restricted to Hubei province in China. Things have obviously changed in the interim. Uh, that's what happens with a disease like this when the spread is exponential. Uh, here in the United States, certainly the gravity has started to sink in. It's been an incredibly turbulent week in financial markets. People are beginning to take this widely seriously. Um, sports leagues are getting canceled. Major events are getting canceled everywhere. I myself had three international trips canceled this month, um, although I was successfully able to go to Taiwan uh, last month. And I'll actually talk a little bit about Taiwan since it's been an interesting case study in uh, managing the coronavirus effectively, uh, even with uh, Taipei being outside of major international organizations like the WHO, for example. Um, but Prashant, I thought we'd begin today's discussion by talking a little bit more about the economic consequences. Uh, you know, for listeners, we're not going to be talking about the public health consequences of this, because frankly, neither of us are public health experts. There's a lot of misinformation out there. But basically, uh, the advice that is most pertinent to follow is to socially distant yourself if you think you might have been exposed. Um, and if you've been traveling like we have, you probably have been exposed at some point recently because this thing is spreading very quickly. Um, and also to wash your hands. Uh, and that's really uh, all most people can do at this point. Uh, so, Prashant, let's, let's talk a little about the economic blowback. So we are now on the Dow Jones Industrial Average, just 2,000 points away from where that index was when Donald Trump was inaugurated in the United States. Uh, we're looking at a major economic crisis, uh, recessions in most major economies, uh, potentially for multiple quarters. Um, the initial discussions about coronavirus, I think, focused a lot on supply chains because uh, the main outbreak was in China. China uh, imposed major lockdowns. Manufacturing came to a halt. But now I think the concerns have really more broadly spread out into the region. Um, you were just also in Southeast Asia, so I'm hoping you can share a little bit about the impressions you got about how this is being perceived in the region. But in terms of the economic consequences of this pandemic, um, how do you think this will really affect Asia. There's a lot to talk about here, but I think I think maybe a place to start is how this might affect sort of regional integration, economic integration, and potentially how supply chains might evolve. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, like like you said, it's, it's it's there's so much to talk about here, but I think the big question really is I there's been concerns for several months now, even before the coronavirus spread, that you know we might be heading for some sort of you know economic crisis. You know, global growth was was pretty sluggish. Um, and there were expectations that there might be concerns on this front. And so this coronavirus outbreak really has just intensified uh, those worries. So the things that we're seeing in, in stock markets, uh, things that we're seeing just because you know of the implications that we've seen for China, you know, any indicators you're looking at, whether it's on, on travel, uh, on industry more broadly, a lot of key economies are being affected. And right now, as you said, I mean, we we it seems like we're just now sort of nearing what this could actually look like with all these big conferences being canceled, um, sporting events and such. Um, I think there's a lot of worries about this. And, and the other thing that uh, I think is, is really important, which you touched on in the introduction, is 
when this originally took place, there seemed to be a sense that this was something that was just affecting, you know, three or four countries, essentially, right? So that there were all about 90% of these cases were just in four main countries, China, South Korea, Italy, and Iran. But now, essentially, what the WHO has mentioned, and I think the big thing that people are going to be looking to see is, is this really going to get more global? So if the risks are emanating from several different countries at a single particular time, it's going to be very difficult for countries to sort of continue to take the actions that they took up front, which is, okay, we're going to restrict travel from these three or four countries, and then we're going to quarantine these people and, and try to contain some of the, the outbreaks that are happening. So, you know, you can see even countries that are have handled this pretty well, you know, Singapore Prime Minister uh, Lee Sin Long was was on television sort of saying, you know, just just uh, a few hours ago that um, Singapore, who has handled this pretty well, is preparing for this thing to uh, potentially get a lot worse and become a lot more global. And, you know, until the next few months, I think he said until about a year, they're expecting the situation to kind of ebb and flow. So there's just a lot of uncertainty right now about where this is heading. And I think you know, the big takeaway line that we're hearing from people is this could get a lot worse before it gets better. Yeah. And, you know, at the risk of sounding a little dramatic, uh, you know, I mean, I think long term listeners to this podcast probably know that I don't tend to inflate threats, um, especially when it comes to things like even, you know, nuclear weapons in North Korea or whatever. Um, but I will say, I mean, this thing kind of feels like a once in a hundred year shock to the global system. Um, if you look at the economic consequences, especially, um, obviously, you know, I think it's looking inevitable that the human toll of this is only going to get worse. We already have um, several thousand fatalities. I'm not going to speak in specific numbers because by the time everybody listens to this podcast, uh, the numbers will be totally irrelevant because this is growing exponentially. But um, you have a supply shock on one hand, which really, I mean, I think the early days of the coronavirus outbreak in Wuhan uh, and the spread to the rest of China really made it seem like a supply side issue. Um, but now with this becoming a global pandemic, it is becoming very clear that we're also looking at a global demand shock. Um, and, you know, I, I talked about this a little bit in uh, the recent issue of the um, APAC risk update newsletter, uh, which listeners can subscribe to at diplomat.substack.com if they'd like to receive that in their inboxes. But I talked a little bit about what the, you know, the, how limited the, the, toolkit that the global policy community has to deal with this is right now, right? You already have really low mm -hmm. interest rates. The Federal Reserve took, undertook a um, very rare 50 basis point cut that was last uh, conducted at the height of the global financial crisis. Um, and there have been a lot of comparisons drawn to what's happening in financial markets this week and to the collapse of Lehman Brothers and Bear Stearns in uh, September 2008. And I think those comparisons are limited um, because this is really about the fundamental that drives all human economic activity, which is human beings going out and building things and human beings demanding those things, right? So when you don't have supply and you don't have demand, you have supply being depressed in major manufacturing economies uh, and you have demand just internationally depressed because people don't want to leave their homes or really do anything when, you know, with a few exceptions, let's say, you know, people are still staying at home and, and consuming various, um, various necessities. Obviously, those things become really difficult to deal with. And then the answer doesn't become monetary policy. Uh, we have to begin thinking about tools like putting money directly into people's hands. And the U.S. is still figuring this out. There's debates going on uh, on the Hill right now about the proper way to respond. Uh, other countries have taken separate um, measures as well. In China, there's a lot of concern about small businesses, uh, for example, restaurants uh, that have gone without significant business now for more than two months. Uh, many of them are facing existential risks. And if you have small and medium enterprises 
start to collapse en masse across these major economies, that leads to broader financial contagion, people having less money to spend generally. So this is really going to require a novel type of policy response on the world stage, and I think people are still figuring that out. On the supply side, though, I think what's been interesting is um, manufacturing in general, I think, has taken a major hit, even though I think a lot of folks haven't seen this with prices for, let's say, you know, complex goods, automobiles, electronics. Um, but, I mean, especially for something like the just-in-time manufacturing model that many um, large manufacturers have been using since the 70s and 80s, this presents a major problem because if you're manufacturing something like let's say, a car, um, you're expecting to receive specific components without which a single unit of a car cannot be manufactured. And if you don't, if your supplier in China or something has shut down now for, you know, potentially several weeks, that will lead to sort of feed, feedback effects down the, down the line where several weeks from now, um, manufacturing stops. But given the fact that demand is also so low right now, um, that could, I think, you know, present some kind of um, challenge that we've never really seen before. Um, but, you know, I will I will just talk about I mean, So I, I found this um, a survey on the manufacturing and supply chain impacts of COVID-19 that was um, undertaken recently by the Institute for Supply Management. There's some really interesting findings here. Um, so the these are some of the findings in this report. So 57 percent of the respondents to the survey noticed that they that their manufacturing processes had experienced longer lead times for China sourced components. Uh, manufacturers at China, meanwhile, were operating at 50% capacity with just 56% of normal staff. And that's on average. It, it really varies. There were some entities that were down to 10% of their normal staff, for example. Um, and almost a majority of respondents didn't really have a plan in place to address supply chain disruptions from China. Uh, and that's a major problem because this kind of shock, I think, was something that was only previously imaginable in wartime. Um, really, <laughs> nobody was thinking about um, how to how to hedge this. I will say, though, last week when I was in Taiwan, um, I heard something quite interesting from a few folks in, um, you know, a, a, a couple of folks that I spoke to in the international business community involved with uh, the European and American Chamber of Commerce, talking a little bit about how the trade war actually in recent years had already gotten companies, many of them based in Taiwan, um, and also with the encouragement of the Taiwanese government under the new southbound policy to begin thinking about supply chain diversification. And now with the COVID-19 shock hitting, many of these companies actually found that they had plans in place uh, to think about doing business without having their normal access to the Chinese mainland market. Um, but and now with this becoming a global pandemic, I think uh, really this is uh, going to become a much bigger problem. In fact, China looks like it's actually getting its COVID-19 situation under control. President Xi Jinping was just in Wuhan this week to take a victory lap. Um, and mm -hmm. with that, I think it suggests that manufacturing in China is likely to pick up and potentially return to normal. But then again, we have questions about what that means in an environment where global demand is likely to be depressed um, because of um, broader fears around the pandemic. Yeah, that's right. I mean, I, I think that that's really the one of the big takeaways here, right? So when we were talking about this uh, initially in the earlier episode, you know, this was, you know, heavily concentrated, not exclusively, but, you know, in China and a few other countries. But since then, I mean, China was recording, you know, literally thousands of new cases uh, each day. Now it's down to, you know, just a few dozen. So I think there was like 20, 23 or 24 cases uh, a day now. And this and at the same time, we just don't have a sense of where other major countries are going to end up, you know, good case in point is the US. I mean, they, they haven't had a lot of cases so far, but you had officials at the CDC uh, telling Congress in, in, in DC this week, 
you know, if this doesn't get into control and they don't get the testing kits out, uh, they don't, you know, sort of slow the spread uh, of this thing. It could get up to, you know, millions is, is what these officials were, were saying. Uh, so this is not something which, you know, we're, we're just talking about it here as an, as an alarming thing. I mean, these are the things that officials are actually thinking about and, and working through right now. And, and as you pointed out correctly, the toolkit uh, that policymakers have, unfortunately, you know, it is very limited. So even if you try to put money in the hands of, of people, you know, it, it really is a sort of a bit of a psychological experiment to then assume that these individuals will actually go out when this thing is happening to actually spend the money, right? So that's something that's very uncertain and very difficult to predict. And you can see, I mean, we, we've had this, you know, in the US, but we've had it across Asia as well. You know, you see these pictures of supermarkets, which are, you know, a lot of the aisles are barren, you know, things like toilet paper yeah. uh, is running out. And, you know, and officials have had to step in and, and say, you know, hey, listen, like there's, okay, we need to make sure that we're being vigilant, but there's no need to uh, stockpile on these various things. And we need to actually make sure that people are uh, going on with business as usual, even though this is a sort of heightened state of, state of panic, because if you raise the panic level too much for these officials, right, you get in the way of, if this thing is going to go on for several months to a year, uh, and we really don't know that, people can't be living off that state of panic for um, that long of a duration, right? So yeah. there really is a, a little bit of a fine balance here between making sure you're being uh, you know, vigilant, but also making sure that you're not overly panicking just in case this thing is something that's out for the long term. Yeah, no, and you know, you said something really important, which is that we don't know. And there's a lot of things that we don't know about how this is all going to play out. And I think that's really important to emphasize. I mean, the thing we do know is that this is a phenomenon worth taking seriously. It's a pandemic. Uh, the case fatality rate or CFR, which is something that public health officials pay quite a bit of attention to in pandemics, remains a matter of debate as far as I'm aware. The World Health Organization, mm -hmm. you know, raised some alarm when it estimated 3.4% case fatality rate based off of the observed data. But people have emphasized, of course, that we still don't know the denominator globally, right? If you're mm -hmm. calculating case fatality rate, you need to know the number of people that have actually been infected with the disease. And testing capacity remains a major problem. And maybe this is a place to, you know, maybe this is where we should pivot a bit to talking about some of the countries in Asia that have managed this quite well. Um, you know, I've come back to Taiwan a couple of times just because I was there last week. But um, it is interesting. I mean, the, the, the day I arrived in Taipei was actually the first day that a case was reported in New York City. And I remember talking to a Taiwanese official and I, um, you know, I sort of jested that, you know, well, I bet by the time I'm slated to leave Taipei, I'll be better off just staying. And that actually turned out to be very true because Taiwan um, has managed to contain the spread of COVID-19 like few other countries. Um, first of all, uh, you know, they were experiencing some problems in late January and early February where because of Taiwan's problems with its international status, and especially the fact that the WHO categorizes it as Taipei and, and its, uh, its surrounding areas, treating it as a province of China, Taiwanese travelers were having issues. Uh, the Philippines had banned Taiwanese travelers, although the, the Taiwanese um, successfully managed to get that overturned. Uh, the Italians, before they became, uh, unfortunately, one of uh, Europe's biggest hotspots, had also banned Taiwanese travelers. As far as I know, that remains in place. Um, I might be wrong about that by now, but uh, at least when I was in Taipei, that was still in place, and Italy was still experiencing a major outbreak. But um, apart from that, I mean, uh, uh, even given Taiwan's proximity to China, they successfully managed to really tamp down on travel, first of all, to the island. And of course, it helps to be an island. 
Um, but they were really quite effective. Uh, they had around uh, just over 40 cases when I was there uh, with just one fatality. Mm-hmm. And the social measures that were being taken around Taipei were really incredible. You could not enter a single privately owned business or a place of business, uh, you know, a business building, for example, or a shopping mall or even a hotel uh, without getting your temperature taken, your hands sprayed with hand sanitizer, uh, surfaces were being regularly wiped down. Unfortunately, there wasn't a lot of tourism in, in Taiwan when I was there, as far as I could tell, or even international business, because air travel to the island had, had really been cut off. Uh, but I think Taipei is really an example of um, preventive mitigation. Um, what I also learned when I was talking to Taiwanese officials about the um, the ways in which Taiwan had detected COVID nineteen. One of the one of the really interesting things I learned was that uh, Taiwanese public health officials, uh, the Taiwan CDC, had actually um, they track uh, public health developments on the mainland very closely because Taiwan is an island and is very sensitive to um, epidemics and pandemics. And what they noticed was um, in in late December there were sort of reports on Chinese state media that were getting deleted about some kind of new infection that was coming out of Wuhan, potentially viral. And they began to take measures then and monitoring mm-hmm. uh, travelers from Wuhan and from Hubei province. So they were really, really ahead of the curve uh, when it comes to that. Um, another example, apart from Taiwan, uh, is South Korea. And South Korea is a very different case because uh, it had to mitigate. And, you know, I, th- I think many listeners might be familiar with this phrase by now, but flatten the curve successfully, referring to the curve of outbreaks and um, preventing the burden on their public health system. South Korea had a very unfortunate vector with a uh, a religious group, the Shincheonji Church, uh, sometimes described as a cult, um, playing a major role in um, becoming a huge cluster outbreak in the city of Daegu. And uh, the South Korean government really um, stepped in quite quickly, increased testing capacity to 10,000 a day, which as an American really sounds envious at this point, and uh, has at this point succeeded. The last six days have shown decreasing case numbers, uh, confirmed case numbers in South Korea, even as testing goes on. Uh, But what that's meant is that it's quite manageable for the Korean health system, uh, that hospital beds are not being saturated. And that's really the problem with the pandemic that's growing exponentially. So the South Koreans have managed to control this. Um, But Prashant, I mean, you know, I was was sort of part of a couple discussions on Twitter this week about the longer term sort of systemic effects that this COVID-19 phenomenon will have on, first of all, the broader, let's say, ideological struggle between uh, authoritarian systems and democratic systems, right? I mean, we're already seeing signs that China is shifting its public messaging on COVID-19, ranging from insinuating that, you know, Wuhan was not the, potentially not the point of origin of this disease, uh, which, for which I think there's very little evidence, and uh, also insinuating um, or also implying that, you know, China can now play a major role in supporting Western countries. For example, China is assisting Italy and Spain and has entered into agreements even as the United States and the European Union lack capacity to help these countries. And that's led to some concern that longer term, you know, China will position itself as a major provider of public goods and uh, potentially will raise more questions about why the West and the United States are unable to play this role. Um, but I think, you know, we should keep in mind that it's not necessarily authoritarianism that leads to successful uh, prevention of uh, epidemic spread. I mean, South Korea and Taiwan, I think, are important cases to the contrary. Um, And uh, yeah, I think that's worth keeping in mind. But what do you think of that? Yeah, I I think as you correctly put it, I mean, regime type is just only one of several variables with respect to how state responses are are actually play out. There's just so many uh, determinants here. One is, you know, as you pointed out with, with Taiwan, uh, oftentimes, you know, you'll hear when you quote the the successes of countries like Taiwan or Singapore, people will say, 
oh yeah, you know, the, these countries are pretty small, you know, so so they're they're not really that consequential. But actually, if if you look at you know to your point about the effectiveness of what uh, Taiwan did, um, it was actually more in terms of responses and technology. Actually, there, there was an article that was published out I think last week um, by the Journal of American Medical Association, and they took a very rigorous sort of um, evaluation of what Taiwan had done with respect to to the outbreak. And as you correctly pointed out, um, you know, the, they concluded that you know the fact that the Taiwanese had seen this from you know late December, early January, and, and cracked down on it, and the fact that they had been doing things like you know travelers going in, and you know you directly experienced this going into Taiwan, right? The, you know, you have to declare what your status is. They have a very effective program in terms of how they test for things, and they also a lot of the things like health records are, are digitized, so they're very quickly able to make sure that if patients are recorded for a particular uh, condition, they can track what is actually happening. Um, so there, there, there's various components and determinants to that. And the other, the other aspect of this, of course, is you know, leadership. And that's something that's really hard to quantify, obviously. But um, you, know, you, you have seen uh, leaders, uh, depending on, on which country you're talking about. So Vietnam is, is an interesting case, right? So they have been trying to very actively keep the number of cases down, but the way in which they've been doing it, um, you know, I'm not sure still what the effectiveness of these measures would be. So part of what the Vietnamese are doing is, is saying to all Vietnamese citizens, you know, you have to declare what your health status is, uh, including with respect to the coronavirus. And if you don't declare that right and you're found to actually be lying, you know, you're liable to sort of criminal punishment and the like. So that I, I'm not sure how effective that might be, but it is, you know, depending on what regime types you have, it, it really plays out into what uh, policy options uh, these countries are actually uh, trying to pursue. And And the other thing is, I mean, We've been talking a lot about citizens and countries. Um, you know, in the past 48 hours or so, it, it really has come to bear that, you know, even elites, uh, leaders, and governments are, are are being affected as well. So President Rodrigo Duterte being tested for it. Um, you know, Justin Trudeau in Canada and, and his wife, you know, uh, the reports coming out about them being under quarantine. So, uh, and we're hearing a few celebrity cases as well. So this is something which it, it's no longer just sort of, you know, us talking about the population in general. I think the level of consciousness about the situation really has been emerging. Um, I think one other thing I'd say with respect to the provision of public goods, I mean, this is a really interesting uh, case, because if you look at the the longer term trends, right, following the SARS crisis, uh, the United States uh, and U.S. medical professionals actually provided China with a lot of assistance after that in order to make sure that the Chinese increased their capabilities with respect to this. So there was actually a lot of cooperation that was going on at that particular time and thereafter. I think the 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 key thing that you know to keep in mind is I think we talked about this in the earlier podcast the geopolitical environment and context that we're in right now is just so different where I think you are seeing people talking more about you know how China's responding versus how the US is responding rather than countries kind of working together and I think you know it's not just China that's playing to this president Trump has talked repeatedly about hey listen our our focus is just making sure that this doesn't come into the United States um, and containing it rather right. than sort of making sure that's global leadership that's at play. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's really that's really the thing. I mean, you know, viruses don't have nationality, and human yeah. beings are equally susceptible uh, to infection. Um, the public health response. I mean, I think I think you know the the problem with um, you know I agree that it's not a productive time to really have this kind of blame game, but 
the you know there are sort of questions about you know first of all i mean the early ways in which china managed the crisis including by suppressing the spread of information that sort of suggested that they'd learned very little from the sars outbreak and obviously this turned out to be something much more serious but now it's really about first of all mitigating the damage and uh, containing the costs to human life and um hopefully also stemming the potential for economic crisis right i mean yeah, I, you know, I mean, uh, uh, some people have been making the case that the economic effects of this are secondary, but, you know, economic collapse will also lead to uh, loss in human welfare in general, right? I mean, especially um, with uh, overburdened healthcare systems in, in many countries, that's going to be a major concern. And also, I mean, something we haven't really talked about yet on the podcast is the effect that this is likely to have on many of Asia's and also around the world, just um, poorer countries with less capacity for testing, healthcare, governance in general. Um, many of whom just simply don't have the resources to test, right? I think a really concerning case here is Iran, which is another major uh, epicenter mm -hmm. of coronavirus outbreak, with uh, which has shown really no capacity to contain this. 10% of Iranian legislators were infected. Um, the numbers of dead in the country are large, but again, it's it's unclear if the information is actually um, up to up to par. And uh, you know, people have also had major concerns about a place like North Korea, which is hermetically sealed off to the world. The North Koreans have not officially acknowledge any case of coronavirus, which seems incredibly unlikely given the fact that they are next to South Korea and China. And there has been also reporting from within the country from sources like Daily NK, uh, suggesting that they have had um, an unusual amount of deaths from a flu-like disease. So that, I think, um, is is something else to keep in mind, that this is not something that's uh, only affecting Asia's uh, you know wealthier countries and uh, uh, countries that are major parts of the global supply chain. But really, um, it's it's a universal phenomenon. Um, yeah. And uh, yeah, like, I mean, going forward, you know, there, there will be a lot of attention focusing on developing a vaccine, uh, getting into the, the hands of people that need it, um, producing it and, in large numbers. But a lot of that, again, it's it's very difficult to predict when any of this will happen and and whether this um, coronavirus situation will just last for a year or two, potentially. Yeah, absolutely. And, and I think important to reemphasize that we did this in the last episode, too, you know, that things like and we've seen this from from many countries, but it's particularly prevalent between the sort of you know U.S. China dynamic, where you see, you know, the, these Chinese conspiracy theories about you know this being a virus that is manufactured by the United States uh, against China, and then in the United States you're seeing this portrayed as something being you know, it, this is a, a a China thing, this is you know the Wuhan virus, so on and so forth. You know, leaving aside the you know rhetorical utility of of employing those devices, you know, certainly doesn't seem useful uh, to be talking about this in the context of a global pandemic, which is really where this is headed, right? So, the CDC's you know updated assessment is that this is something now that has gone from being something that you know was initially on four countries, primarily China, to being something that is you know more global and more Europe centric. So. I think you know it's important to keep in mind there's you know there is great power competition going on. There is you know u s China relations, rivalry, and all of that. The extent to which that maps onto things like global pandemics is is kind of a different question right, right. no, I think I think I think that's absolutely right. And I mean, really to to boil things down and, and you know, I really hope I'm wrong about this, but this seems like a yeah, it really does seem like a once in a hundred year shock. And uh, mm -hmm. you know, I mean, people have made the comparison uh, to the nineteen eighteen flu um, outbreak, uh, commonly known as the Spanish flu, which again is a misnomer, right? There's been this whole debate in the United States about calling it the Chinese coronavirus or the Wuhan coronavirus, which frankly I think is quite racist and actually engenders further xenophobia against East Asian mm -hmm. people. But um, 
you know, that's neither here nor there. But the comparison to the Spanish flu, I think what's different about this is that this is probably a pandemic that I think nobody alive has anything like this in their living memory, right? Um, it's not, mm -hmm. It's not a global world war. It's something that's going to have major economic consequences. Um, but the Spanish flu was coinciding, obviously, with a time of major geopolitical tumult in general, right at the end of the Second World War. Um, so unfortunately, it was overshadowed by uh, other global, event, global events at the time. The COVID-19 crisis is striking at a time of relative global prosperity, um, right? Mm -hmm. Even even with uh, trade wars and tariffs and, um, you know, what some people have called uh, deglobalization underway with anxiety over immigration in, in the West and elsewhere, um, something like this hitting at a time like this really makes it I think largely unprecedented uh, since um, in the you know in the post-industrial revolution era, uh, where we really haven't seen anything like this on a global scale before. So, a lot does remain unknown. Um, the optimist in me says that this will be something that the world is able to recognize uh, is is a cause to come together over. Um, but again, given how unprecedented this is, uh, we really just don't know. Um, but. It looks like, I mean, the reaction in containing this in Europe and certainly the United States, I think, has been poor to the extent that things are about to get a lot worse. Uh, so I suspect we'll be talking about this soon. And, you know, we haven't talked really about the political consequences for this uh, for many countries, uh, right? This is the kind of phenomenon that could make or break governments. There's mm -hmm. already a lot of talk in the United States about what this will mean for the presidential election here. Um, but yeah, I think I think this is set to be pretty much the biggest story in world geopolitics uh, for the next few years. I think the 2020s will be remembered as the decade that began with this uh, unprecedented pandemic. Um, but yeah, Prashant, I think let's leave it there for now um, and definitely keep on top of this. And yeah, we'll be back um, soon, I'm sure, to talk a little bit more about how the COVID-19 situation is playing out and how it's affecting Asia and the world. Uh, thanks a lot for joining me in the meantime. Yeah, good to be with you. Great. Uh, so, and also to our listeners, uh, yeah, make sure you stay healthy uh, and uh, socially distance yourself if you can. Um, you know, I think a crisis like this really makes you realize how much of your travel is actually non-essential. Uh, so as somebody that had, you know, three international trips canceled, I actually realized none of these things are actually that important. Um, so uh, it's, uh, you know, just, um, yeah, take care of yourselves, wash your hands and uh, make sure you stay healthy. Before we close, a quick note from our sponsor. So this episode of the Asia Geopolitics Podcast is brought to you by Diplomat Risk Intelligence, or DRI. DRI is the consulting and analysis division of The Diplomat, the Asia-Pacific's leading current affairs magazine. Since its launch in 2002, The Diplomat has been dedicated to quality analysis and commentary on events and trends in Asia and around the world, and is now one of the most respected publications covering the region. DRI inherits this approach and offers clients in the private, public, and nonprofit sectors worldwide access to an exclusive network of subject matter experts and analysts. Whatever your needs in the wider Asia-Pacific region, DRI can offer the knowledge and expertise necessary to anticipate and manage geopolitical and geoeconomic risk. For more information, please visit dri.thediplomat.com. Thanks a lot for listening, and we'll be back next week with more.